Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS Podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, your American Ambulance's Medical Director. I'm here with our awesome co-hosts, Dr. Sajan Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about rapid decision-making. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of Americans' family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. Patio, kick us off with introduction to rapid decision making. Okay, so I'm really excited about this topic because every sh- every single shift you work, this applies. You're making hundreds of fast decisions, both consciously and unconsciously. Is this patient going to deteriorate? Is the scene safe? Does the patient need to be transported or are they safe at home? So we're going to delve into pre-hospital decision-making today, which is a very little studied field, as it turns out, that deserves the spotlight, because this is at the core of what you do all day, every day. So first, what is medical decision-making? Let's just start technically, and then we'll expand our way out. In technical terms, it's the cognitive pathway that allows you to make a treatment plan or diagnosis from the array of information sources and competing possibilities. And why is this so special in pre-hospital medicine? It's really because the patients and scenes are unknown. There's a high proportion of unstable patients or the potential for instability. Many patients must be treated and transported quickly, and there are very high levels of diagnostic uncertainty. Um, You have to make a lot of decisions in a short period of time, which we call a high decision density and a high cognitive load which means not only are you working on the task at hand, but there are interruptions and distractions and other things going on around you. The bottom line is you are making a lot of decisions in a short period of time while dealing with a fairly undifferentiated patient. So I'm going to ask a few questions to my lovely co-hosts here, um, and then you guys listening can answer this in your mind, and then we're going to kind of get into these topics. So do you guys use your intuition to make decisions? Absolutely. Yes. Do you feel like on a regular shift in the emergency department, you're using your intuition a lot or a little bit? I just want to interrupt for a second. And can you define intuition for the group? Like I would kind of say intuition is a bunch of things I gather by staring at somebody, watching them. Like I might walk by a patient in the hallway five times. Also, I'm like, oh, they don't look so good. Now let me get nosy. Let me figure out what's going on with that patient. Or you're talking about intuition, like just like a sixth sense or define what you mean. Exactly. That's perfect. It's your gut feeling. Sometimes people call it, call it their sixth sense. Um, I use spidey sense a lot. I say my spidey sense is tingling. Whatever name you give it, it's this um, it's this muscle that needs to be exercised and developed. And it's just that that initial feeling you get about something. I used to think when I was starting off that all of the people above me had like magical powers and like they could know like when someone's going to code and what's going on. And you know, none of us start off with magical powers. As you see tons of cases, your knowledge builds and then your sense of knowing builds. And then one day you just realize in an instant if a person is sick or not sick. 
I really like that you call it a muscle because as you're saying, I think even for myself over the last few years, it's changed so much how quickly I can realize something is happening or how quickly I get that spidey sense. I think it's really important to use it over and over and think about it and not forget about it because it does play an important role for me in my medical decision making. Yeah, I think for all of us. Now, next question. Do you guys think experts or novices use intuition? Experts. I would agree experts. Okay. We're going to get into the answer of that in a little bit. Do you think experts or novices use protocols? I would say both. I'd say both, but I, I feel like novices probably rely on protocols more. Yeah, that was kind of a trick question. But yeah, it is kind of both. And we're going to talk about this too. Who do you think is an expert? I think you're an expert. Why? I think you've seen a lot of patients and I consult you for things that I don't know about. And you seem to know those things. And yet someone else would think you're an expert because they're, you know, a first year resident and you have like three years on them. I think expertise comes with time and with dedication to your craft. So if you take it to like basketball, right? Like I may become, I'm a natural and I may be great at basketball. I'm an expert at that in a really short time. Or I may need to work at it, work on it. I don't become an expert for a while. So I think expertise is different for everyone. Totally. And then how do you guys think we make fast decisions? I think it's a combination of your knowledge and your, and the patient you're seeing in front of you. And then combining that with your intuition. I think that's how you make a fast decision. Yeah, I think it's taking all these data points at one time, conscious and unconscious. You know, what do they look like? What do they smell like? What's the situation? What's the story I'm hearing? And then like a pattern, you're trying to put it together and patterns you've seen before and jump to that conclusion. And then changing, being open to changing and not harnessing on that diagnosis all the time, like changing as more information comes in. Yeah, you guys raise such good points. It's com- it's really combining everything and then also being open to change and not anchoring in on one thing. I mean, we're doing a lot, kind of all at once, it seems sometimes. So I've talked to a lot of medics about this topic in the last couple months, um, and I didn't uh, want to put in any single person on the spot today. So I figured I'd just kind of take some of their um, interesting stories and like discuss them. But one story that really stood out to me um, was in the case of a helicopter medic who arrived at the scene of a quad crash. It was a woman and her nine-year-old nephew. They were involved in the crash and shortly after went back into the home and the initial call out was for the injured woman. So when the medic walked into the home, fire and law were already there. Um, so law enforcement The flight nurse immediately walked over to the injured woman who was on the ground. She was moaning and flailing in pain, and everyone was focused on her. It was assumed that the woman on the ground was the patient that they they would transport, and that was what the call out was for. Now, the medic says, you know, he kind of stood back for just a few seconds and surveyed the scene. And what he noticed was that the child, that nine-year-old, was sitting on the couch with one of the cops And immediately, in a split second, he knew something was wrong with the child. Um, He says, you know, the kid had a thousand-yard stare and was abnormally calm. And that just seemed really weird to him. He was like, you know, kids aren't that calm after a big crash. And, you know, I think we've all noticed over the years that if you see a really quiet kid or baby after a major trauma, that's actually a bad thing. And so he walked over to the flight nurse and said, Let's take the kid instead, right? Remember, that's not what their initial call is for. 
So then the nurse walked over to the kid and the nurse too, the flight nurse, immediately was like, something's off with this kid. They don't even have vital signs yet. But they decided to transport the kid by helicopter instead of the woman. The woman was transported by ground and she actually did not end up having any any injuries. The child ended up having a severe splenic laceration and went to the operating room immediately. And so this medic's instincts were right on. And so I was like, what? How does this happen? I think the key point in that is he listened to his spidey sense and didn't let the train that's already left the station, like, you know, the call was for the woman, the nurse looking at the woman, you could easily have taken the woman, right? And then the kid would have come by ground and may or may not, may have done just fine. You never know. But it's like listening to that sense because sometimes you're like, something's wrong, but you don't always listen to it. Exactly. So listening to it, right? And he was saying like he thought his experience was a big factor in the case, Um, And experience is a huge factor. I mean, we're all in Jedi training, but like Jedi training never stops, you know, like it's Jedi training for life because you keep learning more and like, and then trusting, you know, your gut as well as the data you're getting and adjusting. The more sick people you see, the more you know what sick looks like. The more healthy people you see, the more you recognize healthy. The more scenes you work on, the more you know how to control the situation and work with your team and all the different people involved um, and know how to like listen to dispatch to, you know, get the stories, all, all the pieces. And one of the things, you know, I've talked about with a lot of the medics is, well, what about, you know, all your algorithms and protocols and pathways that that you guys follow. Um, and we're going to get into this in a little bit more detail. But but really, in the beginning of your training, that's when you're learning all the rules, right? You're learning the rules of the game. Um, you learn about the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. You learn what protocol to follow and when. You learn what's in your medication toolbox and when to use what meds. You run a lot of calls. Go directly to the patient. Immediately assess them. Use those protocols to stabilize the patient, transport them. You become familiar with all the hospitals you're transporting to, how to get report from dispatch, how to talk to buyer and PD who've been on the scene and family and patients, and then giving report to the hospitals. And with each one of these interactions, your subconscious is filing away information. And then one day, you don't even realize you're doing it, but you can get a good chunk of your patient assessment done in a few seconds. So to break this down, we're going to discuss the two main systems of reasoning. So first is what a lot of psychologists call system one, which is your fast or intuitive system of reasoning. And system two is your kind of more deductive rule-based way of reasoning. So system one is kind of recognition primed, right? We're just like, you're recognizing things you might not even know. And this is acquired largely through experience. This is reflexive and skilled actions. This is when we're like running a code, for example, and you're just like reflexively doing things. But it's vulnerable to bias and it's error prone. And sometimes it's like too fast. You know, you don't want to make snap judgments about things. Now, system two, like we said, that's our slow, deductive, rule-based way of thinking. You're using a lot of your analytical judgment. You're taking deliberate, rigid actions. So this is minimizing bias. So it's good in that sense. Few errors. But it can be slow. And let's say if you're actually in the hospital setting, it can be expensive if you decide to order every test in the book on every single person. So you guys already mentioned, like, you think you need a balance between the two, and that's really the case. 
Now, um, I'm obsessed with Malcolm Gladwell, um, and I'm going to briefly reference a couple of books. Um, one is Blink, the other one is Outliers. He does a really excellent job in breaking down some of these concepts in Blink, which if you're interested in this topic and you're in any type of emergency medicine, I highly recommend you read. But one of the concepts he really breaks down is thin slicing. Have you guys heard of this? Yeah, I think it's our unconscious mind finding patterns and situations and behaviors based on a very narrow slice of experience. Yeah, so one great example he gives in Blink is that the Getty Museum in LA had just purchased this ancient Greek statue, and it was a really special ancient Greek statue, and they had done all these scientific tests on it, and they were like, yeah, it's real, it's from, you know, whatever, BC, it's super old, and uh, this is the real deal, and they spent a lot of money on this statue. And then um, they had some Greek classicists who are the experts in the field come and look at them, and immediately one of them just said, I hope you guys didn't spend any money on this. And then another one was like, it just felt like in her body, like she was like, oh, I just want to like throw up when I see this. Like it just, just like looked wrong to them. And later it turns out they were fakes. The statue was a fake. It's like, how does this happen? And it's because these experts, when you spend your whole life, you know, like looking at one thing, they can just in an instant, like, no, you know, this feels fake to me. So this is a system one way of reasoning and really works best with the most experienced. And and for us, it's useful when trying to see if somebody is like sick or not sick, or if you feel like a scene is starting to feel like unsafe, you just, it just feels off. Now, I find for myself that the initial impression of a patient is really valuable. And I always go back to that when I'm thinking about a patient um, so I try to approach each scenario with a clear mind so that I don't get a clouded initial impression. Um, and then remember, you always have to do your own assessment without being biased by what others say. So dispatch may have given you a story. Like in this case, it's like the woman is the helicopter patient, right? But then you go in and you're like, I think the kid's more sick. So so always, you know, listen to others' assessments, but make your own assessment, and then one other thing I'll add is your report is somebody else's very first impression too. Um, and so that's why it's so important to convey like a clear picture of what happened. Now, um, how can you get to this point of being an expert? How much time do you have to spend in your field before you're considered an expert? Yes, I've read it's about 10,000 hours. Yeah, 10,000 hours. And that's actually from Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers book. It takes 10,000 hours of intensive practice to achieve mastery of complex skills. And if emergency medical care isn't a complex skill, I don't know what is. So I calculated how much it is. So for emergency medicine doctors, you know, we do a four-year residency here. And you don't reach those 10,000 hours in your four years. It happens when you're actually like maybe a year and a half out of residency. So it takes, takes a while. Um, if you're doing 12-hour shifts at 12 shifts a month, so that's 12 12s a month, that's it's actually almost six years before you get to those that level. So it's a lot of years. Um, so just to like keep that in mind. So just because you're in your like let's say first or second year, and then you just feel like I'm barely learning my protocols, I don't even know like who's sick and who isn't sick. 
that's okay. Just keep doing what you're doing every day. You are going to get to that expert point. I think it's important too to know that even if, say, you missed the boat on a call, you thought somebody was sick and they weren't sick and you over triage them. That's fine. You learned from that. You look at somebody who under triage them. You learned from that. So I think taking away, don't beat yourself up. These are all learning opportunities to take care of the next patients after your 10,000 hours. It's so true. I mean, I've been doing this for a long time now. And just yesterday I had cases that I was still learning from and adding to, you know, the repository of information. Now, um, let's talk about protocols for a second. So where do protocols fall into this? You know, I love protocols and algorithms. And I feel like in order for this to make sense, we have to talk about the concept of cognitive load. So cognitive load is the weight on your working memory. So it's all the stuff you're just storing in your brain at any given time. And how much information can you retain in your short-term memory before you forget something? You know, how many details can you keep track of? And that's what's really nice about protocols, algorithms, clinical decision rules, and checklists. Because when you're just kind of going down the checklist, right, to get through things, if something's off, it's going to pop out at you. If you have to stop at a certain step, it's going to pop out at you. I find it helps me. What do you guys think? I totally agree. Definitely. I think that's why mnemonics are really good too, because it forces you to keep going through the algorithm and not stick to, oh yeah, it should be this, but you go through all of them in your head. Yeah, exactly. And I think eventually those protocols become a part of your intuition when you do them enough. I think without realizing you're stopping at step four, that becomes part of your intuition. Oh, something is wrong. And, and you don't realize till later that, oh, it's step four on the checklist that was wrong. No, that's exactly it. And you're describing the concept of kind of structuring spontaneity. That's what I like to call it, structuring spontaneity. You can't be like spontaneous with things if you don't have structure to begin with. Um, and so that's kind of simplifying complex medical decision making into this set of rules to free up the rest of your brain to make those fast other decisions. So yeah, if you reduce your cognitive load with algorithms and protocols, then if something is different or weird or just off, you notice it. And sometimes those are like the key things um, in a case. I, I have a little bit of like a creative mind. I'm always thinking, well, how do like artists work? A lot of very successful artists, this is actually how they work. They they have structured times in their day where it's not spawn. They're not spontaneously like creating these great paintings and stuff. They'll be like, I paint every day from, let's say, like, you know, noon to midnight or whatever. And those are my times. And then it's like everything happens in that period. So anyway, structured spontaneity is is really important to combine the two systems of clinical reasoning, analytical and intuitive. So one thing I want to also suggest to the young medics listening is that when you're around a medic who has more experience or an EMT has more experience and they say, hey, that guy's going to code and they start doing all these things and sure enough, the patient codes, afterwards ask them, what did you see? What did you hear? What in part of that patient presentation clicked for them? And I used to do that when I first started out in residency. So when an attending says, oh, you know, get the defib pads on, you're like thinking, Why? They're not in a rhythm yet. They're not like your brain hasn't caught up to there. So I really encourage you to ask the person after the case is over, of course, to say, what did you see? Because you can kind of learn those nuances. They'll be like, look, their skin signs changed or look, their eyes roll back in their head or they had that thousand yard stare. And I feel like getting the hints can really help you in this process of learning. 
Yeah, just the other day, I had this really sick patient and that the、uh, one of the medics brought in as like a stat medical to the back door. And I was like, what gave it away to you? Because she kind of looked okay when she first showed up, but she wasn't. She was very sick. And he was like, her color was just off. You know, she just looked gray. And she did. And she was really, really sick. So it's just like all these like little things. Now, going back to our cases, I've talked to different medics about. A lot of them say that when you first get on a scene, even if it's just for like a few seconds, they like to just stand back and watch the whole thing、um, and survey the whole situation.、Um, because if you're really going to be an expert at what you're doing,、um, you actually can't just zero in and tunnel in on that one patient immediately. You have to, they say, start macro and then go micro、um, so that you can tune in to little bits of valuable information. So, now just to talk about like how you can aid in your decision making on a scene, you really have to try to be the calming energy in the situation because there may be concerned family members who aren't always kind or appreciative of your help.、Uh, many fire and law enforcement officials, bystanders, and others who are just stressed out about a sick person.、Um, speak to your colleagues from PD and fire to get their reports without dismissing valuable information they may have. The more information you have, the better decisions you're going to make. And of course, all the scenes are going to be managed better when you listen to everyone, you work as a team, take your ego out of the picture, and stay calm. We're all like ducks in emergency medicine at every phase of it. We're calm on the outside, but like frantically paddling away under the surface. I always think that the main medic on a scene is very similar to the attending physician in the emergency department.、Um, you're just kind of the Calming, guiding force, just doing tasks、um, so that everybody else can also、um, do the task at hand. And protocols、um, really help us focus in on these tasks while we pay attention to the details. So now we're going to go back to our initial questions. Now that we've talked about this topic, Sajin, do you use your intuition to make decisions? Yes, definitely. Based on everything that we talked about, something that we shouldn't ignore. It's a muscle. I like the way you put it when you said it's a muscle that needs to be exercised. And you see a lot of patients, you develop that intuition, and it definitely plays a part. Listen to your gut and not make assumptions or anchor on biases. So, do you guys think experts or novices use intuition more? I think experts use it more. Yeah, novices are still learning. Um, do you guys think experts or novices use protocols? Both. Yeah, both. Everybody, has, everybody uses the protocols. The protocols work.、Uh, it's just kind of all the other layers you add to it. I like how you brought up Sajin, though, how sometimes protocols become part of our intuition. It's really hard to separate. How do I know what I'm doing next? Is it because it's my intuition or is it because of a protocol I learned and it's just stuck in my brain? So they really do merge sometimes. They really do. So, who is an expert? I think we can use the 10,000 hour definition. I like that one. Yeah. So 10,000 hours of something makes you a good expert.、Um, and then the last question was really how do we make fast decisions? And I think、um, it's a combination of experience, knowing the content inside and out, and really a clear mind in which you can start picking up on the intangibles of the situation, like the energy of the scene. The clarity of thought is really aided by protocols and algorithms that help you down the right path. And then, really, it's fusing these things, which is why humans do this job, because without those little bits that we pick up on,、uh, many life threatening problems would go undiagnosed. So, gut feeling 
or intuition or spidey sense, whatever you want to call it. It's not necessarily a gift people are born with, but one that develops with time and a conscious present mind that's always learning from all of your experiences. And I hope that this can help you guys in here uh, understand your decision-making processes. And if you have any interesting um, stories or cases you want us to discuss, please reach out to us at podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.